Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've inspired it, how it speaks to us. God, I thank you for just how you've preserved the gospel in your word, the message of Christ's death on the cross. And then even as we read in this book, Lord, of how the church came into being and how it grew and how um, they fulfilled the mission of God in Jerusalem and in Judea and into the end of the world, I thank you just for these men and women who would risk their lives and many who would eventually give their lives for you and your word. God, I ask that you would bless us as we study your word now. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the Winter Olympics were few months ago, but one of my favorite sports to watch or that I see that comes on the TV is curling. Uh, curling, you know, is where they kind of slide that stone across on the ice, and then there's people with the brooms and things like that that are trying to get it over to the other side. It's kind of like frozen shuffleboard, if you've ever played shuffleboard before. What well, might interest you to know that these curlers, in my mind, I always just thought they just did this for fun, that they didn't have to really do any preparation for it. While well, I was researching the other day on the preparation that these men and women do for competing in curling, they go to the gym six days a week for two to three hours a day. They do squats, deadlifts, cleans, and cardio. They spend hours just on the ice practicing their gliding and their form. They spend a couple hours a day practicing sweeping. I'm sure many of you would say you can come over to my house and practice sweeping over there, right? They practice the going back and forth, trying to get more velocity, rhythm, things like that. All in this attempt to win a gold medal in the sport of curling. As we look at this text this morning, we see the disciples are preparing to share the gospel. They're preparing to go into all the world and preach the gospel just as Christ has commanded them to do. But what I find interesting about this passage is that they don't just go right out and start sharing the gospel. They start to prepare. And they don't prepare like we might think they would. If you were to go and have an outreach event, or we said as a church we want to do some outreach in Trafalgar and in one of the other cities, we might start printing off some tracks. We might start making maps, inflating bounce houses, you know, getting food ready, trying to attract people, doing all these things in preparation for the event. And yet that's not what we see the disciples do, is it? What do we see the disciples do in the book of Acts? We see them pray. We see them pray. Prayer is an essential element that often sets the New Testament church, the church in Acts, that group of believers, unfortunately, it often sets them apart from our churches today. See, we have prayer meetings, we have prayer events, we read books on prayer, we take prayer requests, but how often do we pray? I'm afraid the answer is very few times indeed. Now, there are prayer warriors, and I recognize that. There's people in this church who pray, I'm sure, much more than I do or that I could ever imagine. And I'm thankful for that. That is a ministry to our church. 
But why do we neglect to pray? Is there anyone here that would say, I don't need to pray any more than I already do? Well, absolutely not. All of us need to pray. So why do we neglect to pray? Alistair Begg says prayer is the acknowledgement of our need for God's help, not in partial, but in total. It's an acknowledgement that I need all of God's help, right? That I need all of God's wisdom, his might, his strength, and that I can do nothing. We totally need God's help. Jerry Bridges says prayer is the most tangible expression of our trust in God. Meaning this, how do you know a person trusts in God? How do you know a person really believes in God, trusts that God will help him? He prays. How often do you pray this morning? How often do you pray in preparation for doing ministry, for doing God's work? I know that not everyone in this room, in fact, no one besides me, is in full-time ministry, but all of us can serve God. All of us have things that we can do for God. And so we need to pray. And that's what I want us to see from the sermon this morning, that we should prioritize prayer as we prepare for ministry. We should prioritize prayer as we prepare for ministry. And why am I saying that we should do this? Because it's what we see the disciples do in Acts 1. Look with me at verse 12. After Christ ascends into heaven, and that's a pretty tough act to follow up, right? The cloud coming down, getting Jesus, taking him up to heaven. We start reading in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Let's stop there for a second. So they're going back to Jerusalem. Why are they going back to Jerusalem? Because Christ said, go back to Jerusalem and wait on the promise of the Father. What is that promise? It's the Holy Spirit. So they're going back to Jerusalem. They're waiting on this promise of the Holy Spirit. They're coming back from this mount called Olivet. This is where the ascension took place, where Christ went into heaven. And then we see that it was a Sabbath day journey away. Now, why does he say this? He says this because there was only a certain amount of distance that you could go on the Sabbath. You couldn't just walk all over the place. You could actually only go three quarters of a mile in distance. And so for this to be a Sabbath day journey away, it was about three quarters of a mile away from Jerusalem. Let's keep looking at verse 13. And when they entered, they went to the upper room. So it's probably a large room of someone's house. It may have been, it probably was where they had the Last Supper, where Christ instructed his disciples in the Last Supper. Some think it could have been John Mark's father's house, could have been the house of one of his disciples. We're not entirely sure but the upper room is important. It's an important part of the book of Acts. We're actually going to go back there a couple more times in the book of Acts and see the disciples there. So they go to this place called the upper room. It was like their headquarters. And then in verse 13, we see the list of disciples. It says, And when they had entered the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. 
What do we notice about this list? Well, some people will make a lot of comments about the order and who's first and who's last, things like that. I won't get into that necessarily this morning. Just notice who is missing, and that is Judas. Why is Judas missing? Because he betrayed Christ. Keep looking with me at verse 14. All these with one accord. It's one of Henry Vosburgh's favorite words. It means to have unity, to have the same mindset, to have the same heartbeat, to be in spiritual unity. And our first point, actually, is prayer that leads to spiritual unity. What were the disciples doing? They were being united. They were being unanimous. It comes from the Greek word homothuladon. Try saying that five times fast. It means to be of the same mindset, purpose, or impulse. To act as the same body. Luke actually uses it in the book of Acts a couple different times, and we'll see it in a moment. So why did they have this unity, this purpose, this mindset? Keep reading. All these with one accord were what? Devoting themselves to prayer. The apostles were devoted in prayer. What does it mean to be devoted in prayer? That word devote actually means to persevere, to keep on going. Now, what does that say about prayer? Prayer is something that you can be stopped in, right? Prayer is something that's kind of hard to keep going in. How often do we forget to pray? How often do we not prioritize prayer? Often, right? They are devoting, they are persevering in prayer. They're continuing to pray. And they're doing this together. They're devoted in prayer for the spiritual unity, togetherness, closeness of this body. You see, the action itself of prayer is not hard, but how often do we forget to pray for one another? Prayer is something we must be devoted to, isn't it? Prayer is something we must be committed to, that we persevere in together. What do you think they were praying for in this text? They're devoted in prayer. What do you think these disciples were praying for. They're praying for unity. I think they're praying for their upcoming mission, right? Going into the world, making disciples. They're going to have to make a pretty important decision later on for this church. Prayer is certainly something that unifies the body of Christ. Think about the life of our church And how often we pray for one another. We give requests. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting. We have prayer time in the service. How often we pray for one another. And how close that makes our bond. How we know more about each other. Now hopefully not in a gossipy type way. But how we grow in relationship. And how I can grow in my relationship with you, without you even being there, just by 
praying for you. Isn't that amazing? We should pray for one another. We should pray with one another. Why? For the spiritual unity, vitality, growth of our church. How can we do this? A couple things. I didn't put them on the PowerPoint, but here's a couple thoughts on how you can pray for unity for our church. First of all, pray more for spiritual realities rather than physical circumstances. It's not wrong to pray for physical circumstances, is it? But so often we forget praying for one another spiritually, for each other's growth, commitment to Christ, for the gospel to go out, for the great commission to be fulfilled, for the love, for the unity that we have as a body. Pray for one another, for spiritual realities more than physical circumstances. Secondly, personally follow up with members of the congregation. How often after you pray for someone, do you go up to them and you ask them how they're doing? What did God do in that request? How did he answer your prayer? Lastly, commit to personal time with God. Don't just pray at church and prayer meeting, at meals, before your team plays in college football or something. Commit to time praying for the church. Prayer that leads to spiritual unity. Secondly, our much bigger point, what the rest of the text is, we should pray for God's will. We should pray for God's will. Look with me at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was about 120. Now notice what Luke is doing. He's writing these parentheses in the text, and he's making little notes for Theophilus. And we're going to see this a couple times in this passage that Luke is making some annotations, some additions to what Peter is going to say. Why is Peter in charge? Why is he the leader? Well, because Christ gives him, well, Christ says, you are Peter, the rock. Now, I don't think Peter is the rock that the church is built on, but he is a rock. He's someone who's going to be used in the life of the church and in the leadership of the church. So we see that Peter is in charge here. Look at verse 16. He says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Peter's getting them ready for a decision. He's getting them ready for something, for this scripture. And he's going to explain why they have to make an important decision together as a church. He's going to use the Bible, actually, the Old Testament, to help him make this point. Why is he writing about this? Why is he writing concerning Judas? He's going to give an answer to that in verse 17. Let's read. For he was numbered among us and allotted his share in the ministry. 
Judas, we know, was one of the disciples. He was one of the followers of Christ. And he was given this share of ministry, this spot in ministry with them. Sometimes we give Judas a bad rap, don't we? We say, and he, I mean, he betrayed Christ, so I'm not saying we wrongly do that necessarily. But Judas was just as much a disciple as the rest of the disciples were. He was chosen by Christ. He was in this ministry. Now, he chose to betray Christ, ultimately. We know that from the Gospels. But Judas had an important role within the Twelve, and it was a role that needed to be replaced, and we're going to see that. So Judas is given this role, this place within the disciples. Peter's saying we need to fill this spot Now, in verse 18, look with me. Luke is going to make a note here, an addition here. I don't think this was part of Peter's speech. He's going to make an addition to inform Theophilus and the other readers as to what was going on in the book of Acts. Let's read verse 18. Now, this man, talking about Judas, acquired a field for the reward of his wickedness. What was this field? Remember, Judas was given 30 pieces of silver to betray Christ, right? He wanted to come back and give them back that money because he realized what he had done is wrong, but it was too late. So he throws the money on the ground and he goes and he hangs himself. What did the priests do with this money? Well, they bought a field with it. We see this happens. He says, He bought a field as the reward for his wickedness. It says, In falling headlong, he burst open in the middle. So he's hanging, he fell down, he burst open. And it says, His bowels gushed out. It's kind of a gross picture to think about, especially before lunch. But this gives us a little bit of insight as to what happened as Judas was dying and why this field is called the field of blood. In verse 19, it says, And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem as Alcadema, I think Tim said it better, the field of blood. Luke is giving this explanation to Theophilus to let him know what had happened with Judas. Now, had Theophilus read the Gospel of Luke? Yes. Because the Gospel of Luke is written to Theophilus. We see that in Luke 1. But Luke is giving this background information to remind him, to explain to him what went on with Judas. Then we see Peter quote the Old Testament in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. This comes from Psalm 69. Psalm 69. He's going to quote two different psalms here to give an argument, to give a reason why they should replace Judas as an apostle. Psalm 69 explains the reason or the judgment of God on his enemies. The judgment of God on his enemies. And it shows what God does 
to those who are his enemies. So the verse he quotes, it says, May his camp become desolate. Those who oppose God, those who are the enemies of God, God makes their camp desolate. Now think about this. This is a psalm of David. Peter says this is from the mouth of David. Was David thinking of Judas when he wrote this? I don't think so. I think David was dealing with his own enemy at that time. Did the Holy Spirit know when he inspired David to write this what Judas was going to do? I would say yes. Yes, he did. What an amazing truth aspect of the word of God that God in David's life could write this psalm, inspire David to write this psalm, and it applies to him. And then Peter could apply this psalm to their own present circumstance. What an amazing God that we serve and how he uses his word. The second quotation comes from Psalm 109. Psalm 109. And it says, let another take his office. Someone else would have to take Judas's place. Someone else would have to step in for him. So Peter quotes these two psalms to make his argument, to make his case for why Judas needed to be replaced. Look with me at verse 21. He gives the qualifications or the type of person needed to fill Judas's office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. What are the requirements for being an apostle? This is important for us to remember today, because this is why I would say there are not any apostles alive today. They needed to witness Christ's ministry, first of all, his real physical ministry. Now, they didn't have to be there at the baptism of John. In fact, I think the baptism of John was a private event in Jesus's life. But they needed to be there for part of Christ's earthly ministry. And then secondly, they needed to witness his resurrection. They needed to see the resurrection of Christ. And so Peter gives these qualifications. And look at verse 23. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbath, who was also called Justice. So he's really got three names, okay? And then Matthias. Now we don't know too much about either of these men, except for apparently they were qualified for taking this position of apostleship. They were the ones who were able to serve. I can remember being in junior high, and I was not a very good basketball player, but we had a pretty small team. So I was like the sixth or seventh man. Well, the starting center for the team ate too many combos on the way to the game. He was sick to his stomach, and I got to start my first basketball game. Didn't play well, 
scared out of my life. But I got to start my first basketball game because he had been sick. These two people are the alternates. They're the people who are qualified, who are able to take Judas's place. We don't know too much about either of these men. And honestly, I don't think we hear about either of them after this event happens. So what would the disciples do? They're given this job, this decision that they needed to make. What would the disciples do? Look at verse 24. And they prayed. They prayed. What did they pray for? They prayed for God's will to be done. Notice what they say. I think how they phrase this prayer to God is so fascinating. They say, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these you've chosen. First of all, they recognize God's sovereignty. God knows our hearts. Doesn't he know all of our hearts? And God knows what decision is going to be made. He knows everything. He says, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. They recognize God's sovereignty. They show their dependence on God in prayer. So they say, show us who you have chosen. Which of these two you have chosen? God, you're going to make your will known anyways. So show us which one of these two you've chosen. And notice what the rest of their prayer says about this ministry. To take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. God, show us who you want to take this awesome weight of responsibility. Their prayer emphasizes not only the sovereignty of God, his omniscience, his sovereignty, how God is already in control of all things, but it also emphasizes the ministry that they are choosing, that they are making this decision for as well. So keep reading in verse 25, or in verse 26. And they cast lots for one of them, and the lot fell on Matthias. So they cast these lots. Now there's a lot of discussion about whether or not they should have cast lots. Some of them actually think that Paul was meant to be the 12th apostle and that they should have waited for him. Casting lots was marking two different stones, putting them in a jar, and then shaking them for one of them to come out. I'm not saying that's what we should do today for making our decisions. But it's actually an Old Testament practice in trying to discern God's will. So was this right for the apostles to do? I would say yes. I would say yes. Some think it's wrong. Some think they should have waited. I would say it's right for the apostles to do. And why is that? Well, first of all, they prayed. And I have a hard time thinking that after they prayed, they would still think it's the right decision to cast lots if it really wasn't. 
Second of all, this was how they made decisions in the Old Testament. This was what they knew how to do. Third of all, and you might ask the question, well, if they cast lots back then, then can we cast lots today? No. And why do we not need to cast lots today? Because we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. So they cast these lots and Matthias is chosen. And guess what? We don't hear anything else about Matthias in the rest of Scripture, do we? So why is this passage in the book of Acts? I believe it because it reminds us of the importance of prayer in ministry. How often do we prepare for ministry, prepare for service by praying? How often in our decision-making do we make decisions after we have prayed and sought God's will first? This was the practice of the disciples. The disciples prayed for God's will to be done. They sought God in prayer. They recognized his sovereignty. Was the disciples' prayer going to change the will and mind of God? No. I believe God had already made up his mind. God knew what was going to happen in this circumstance. So why did they pray? They prayed so that they could align their own hearts with God's will. You know, some people ask, why should I pray if God's already made the decision, if he already knows what's going to happen? And I say, well, think about this. If he knows what's going to happen, he knows whether or not you prayed before that decision was going to happen, doesn't he? It's an important thing for us to remember. How should we pray? How should we prepare for service? We should pray for our church. Consider these four elements of prayer as you pray for our church and the ministry here. First of all, pray that God would protect the unity that we have here as a church. How can you pray for our church? How can we pray as we prepare for serving God, for a life of serving him, following him? Pray that God would protect our unity, that he would keep us from fighting, that he would keep us from in divisions and pride and selfishness that would tear the body of Christ apart. Secondly, pray for the purity of our church. Pray that God would protect our purity, would give us clean hearts, that he would help us to grow in Christ. Pray for our unity. Pray for our church's purity. Thirdly, pray that God would guide our leadership. Pray that God would give our leadership decision or wisdom as we make decisions. And then lastly, pray that we would use opportunities to share the gospel. Pray for our church's ministry. We see the disciples united 
gathered in prayer for this ministry, for this task that they've been given. I heard a pastor talk about someone, talk about a man, and he described him this way. He said he believes in the power of prayer. And I thought about it for a moment, and I thought, well, all of us believe in the power of prayer, but sometimes we don't live that way. Sometimes we don't act that way, do we? Sometimes we act like we can handle everything on our own. Sometimes we act like we have it all under control. Do we pray, recognizing, knowing, trusting that we need God and his provision in our lives? Do we pray for God's will to be done in our church? As we seek to share the gospel here in Trafalgar, Indiana, as we seek to serve God, as we're preparing for this ministry, how often do we pray? As you're thinking about your neighbor who you want to share the gospel with, and you wonder, I just can't get up the courage to talk to them, I just can't figure out a good segue How much time do you spend in prayer? This has been something I've been convicted of even in my preaching. Spend hours studying God's word, looking up the original language, going to commentaries, all these different resources. But I spend a very small fraction of that time actually praying for God to speak through his word. You know what happens when I do pray for God to speak through his word? I often find that his word is more impactful, maybe not in anyone else's life, but in my life, as I trust God and his goodness and his protection. This story of the disciples, like I said earlier, why is it here? Why does Luke include this for us? Because we're going to see the disciples do some pretty amazing work in the book of Acts. They're going to do some pretty spectacular Things that leads to the church being born, coming into existence. And I think, at least in part, Luke wants to show us the prayer lives of these apostles. You can pray for our church ministry, for our unity, our purity, our leadership, for opportunities to share the gospel. Also, pray for your your own heart as well. Pray that God would stir and challenge you. Pray as you read God's word every morning that you would grow in Christ, that as you make decisions, God's will would be done. I've been convicted as well of just how many times when I'm making a decision, do I call other people for advice? Do I go to them for their questions? How many times do I type something into Google and asking Google to help me Figure it out. Pray to God. Ask him to help you even personally to grow in Christ. Lastly, pray for me. Pray for our church. Pray for yourselves. Lastly, pray for me. I'm always humbled, touched, tickled, whatever you want to call it, when someone during prayer time brings up my name in prayer. And that's because I appreciate and value the prayers of this congregation for me. 
And because I recognize my own weakness, even as a pastor, in preaching God's word, in shepherding the flock of God, and administering the body. So pray for me that God would work in my life, would enable me to serve him and trust him more fully. And we do all these things, not so that anyone else can look at us and say, man, that's a great church. Not so that we can have a mega church, but so that we can fulfill the mission of God. God gave the disciples a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. In their hometown in Jerusalem, in the surrounding region of Judea, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Luke tells us there's only 120 disciples at this point. And it's 120 going into the world. Fortunately, we don't have to just start with 120. There's more churches than ours who are faithful to share the gospel. Yet we have a mission, Sycamore Bible Church. Our mission, you'll see it on our bulletin, is to make disciples by digging our roots deep into God's word. May I just say we'll fail each and every time that we don't start that mission by praying and asking God for his help. How often do I, as I'm thinking about our church, the direction that we should go in, how often do I neglect prayer for the church? As we go to the Lord in prayer and as we close the service, think about ways that you can improve your own prayer life, ways that you can pray for your church family, not just physically, but spiritually as well. We pray that God would do a mighty work in our community. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you've inspired it, for how you grow us and how you change us and challenge us through it. Thank you for, like I said earlier, the early church, their faithfulness to you and to the gospel. God, we confess, I confess that I don't often pray as I should. I don't often pray with a heart that is thankful for you and what you've done. God, help me to pray more. Help me to pray better. Because prayer shows my trust and my dependence on you. God, I pray that as we think as a church family of how we can serve you, as we prepare for ministry, exciting ministry, pray that we would see souls saved. But I pray that you would help our dependence and our focus to be on you. We'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.